Thanks, Chad. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I rang in this new year by uh, with the flu. So <laughs> this whole week I've been kind of fighting, trying to get better to, to be able to stand before you this morning. And so my voice sounds a little bit funny. That's the reason. And you might or might not want to shake my hand uh, today. But uh, trying to get washed up. But uh, if God will give me strength this morning, we'll uh, look at his word and, and learn from it together. And I'm grateful uh, for it and... and uh, the promise that it uh, it will do its work. So let's go before him this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this new year you've given to us. Um, as, we, as we enter it, this is a, a Sunday, and so it's like any other Sunday that we have experienced, and we do the, the same things. And as we enter this year, we'll experience in similar kinds of ways the, all that you are. And we'll need the exact same things that we'll need last year. We'll need your grace. We'll need your word and your spirit. We'll need this community of people. We'll need to be sustained in our faith and our belief as we work through difficulties. We'll have to look to you for the things that we don't have. We'll have to be grateful for the things that we do have and acknowledge that you're the provider. And so, Father... Would you enable us to live this year with our eyes fixed on you? Would you be the source and the power that we need to live this year out, still walking with you at the end of it, 360-some days from now, still trusting you, still finding you to be our source of life, no matter what has transpired between now and then. Use this time this morning, your word, your spirit, Um, to do this work, open our ears and our eyes to hear, to see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, I have an opportunity this week and next week to take a couple of of verses each week and and look at them. Uh, We're studying Hebrews in our Friday morning Bible study and and these passages, which probably will be familiar to you, have been familiar to me, have kind of you know, how that happens kind of come off the page as I've worked back through them in this study and, and thought this would be an opportunity for us to, to look at it this morning. I'm going to read uh, from the first part of the chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, through the end of our section in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In our passage this morning, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and of marrow, discerning and the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Will your passage for us. I'm going to start with a question for you. I want to ask you this. When you think of the word rest, we've actually sung about it a few different ways and times. When you think of the word rest, what comes to mind? What, what comes to mind? What does rest look like for you? What, what, what is it? What do you do and how do you find rest in your life? It certainly involves rights, pulling away from work and from labor. It involves getting away from the noise and busyness of life. It's somehow separating yourself from the weight and the heaviness that's there, if that's possible, to find rest. Well, to answer the question, it really depends on each of our circumstances, right? We will rest as it relates to what's going on in our lives right now. To find rest has to do with circumstances that we live in right now. If we find ourselves in certain amount of financial distress, then rest would be conceived and understood in dealing with that and being able to be void of that and to, to have that dealt with. If we find ourselves in emotional, relational distress then rest would be understood in that way to somehow have a reconciliation or restoration of those challenges and the tension in those relationships. And so rest would be understood in that way. If there are physical ailments or challenges that you have, this whole last week I've been trying to get rest and I just haven't found it. It's been hard to come by because of this silly flu. But when, but rest then would be understood in that way. If you are without a job, then rest would be understood in terms of having a job. You would want that. That would be a desire to you, even though somehow we think it's without it. But no, that would be important, the way you would understand rest. And so on it goes. Our circumstances help determine what indeed what rest looks like for us. A number of years ago, about two or three now, I had the opportunity when I finished up my Master's in Divinity. Many of you were with me through this eight-year process. As I I still remember this entering this semester, the final semester and the final classes, I had three different classes I was taking. I was at the same time studying for ordination exams. And I remember the moment moment in May, about one in the morning, when I sent my final paper to Dr. John Frame, my professor, my final class, having finished all my classes, all my ordination exams, and I sent send on the computer I remember the, the sense of just rest that came after eight years of working for something. I just went, oh, I was able, I was done for now. I could rest from that, and that was a great experience. Rest is an incredible picture. It's what we're made to have. It's a, it's a central picture in Scripture from beginning to end. God uses it in and throughout His Word. The, the passage that we look at, we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews, it's central to understanding what the author is talking about as he calls them to strive to enter this rest. We want to know what that is. We find that the rest is designed, we are designed to live in that setting. So what is that rest? Well, we find that God early on in Genesis chapter 2 demonstrated the rest for us. That he, at the end of his creation, 
rested on the seventh day and he stepped back. And what did he do? Did he rest because he was tired? No, he rested in order to set a pattern for us and to look back and to, and to celebrate and to look upon his good creation. We're supposed to follow in that pattern. We saw that Adam and we see that Adam and Eve as well entered into that rest. And this rest is, can, is pictured in the very real presence of God of living with him. And it's tied to being with him. Even though he gave them jobs to do, they still lived in this restful presence of God's gracious reign and rule over their lives. But then we understand in Genesis 3 that this rest that they had lived in had shattered. It was broken as a result of their sin of rebellion and pride that, that there was no longer rest. This relationship with God was broken. There was no longer any rest. There was now labor and toil and the creation itself would work and fight against them. It would fight against us. And so there's this rest is hard to come by. And the rest of the drama of scripture is, 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 has this in this focus of restoration of this rest. See, we're made to have this, to live in this, to live in a place of peace. At the same time, life, we know this, gets so heavy. Even if we don't have any overt circumstances resting on us right now, we still know it's heavy. But even if we do, as we add those difficulties, those trials that come into our lives, we know what that feels like. And we feel the weight of those. And we long to have rest from those things and to find rest from that we see the sin in our own lives, the helplessness, the weakness that is marks us and who we are. And we want rest from that. We want somehow to be distanced from that. And even in those moments where it seems like everything's okay for a minute or an hour or a day, the question comes to us. We wonder, how long will it remain this way? When might this change? What might be coming towards us? So rest is something that we desire. The author, as he writes here to the these Hebrews, he's addressing a group of people who are under stress, a great deal of affliction, subtle and overt t- temptation and persecution to move away from their faith, their Christ-centered faith that they had embraced, to move away from that and to supplant that faith in Christ with a removal and a return to the trusting in the laws and regulations and customs of Judaism. To avoid that and the temptation that they were experiencing is similar to what we experience. And that is the, the challenge is that in those moments when there's challenges and trials, persecutions, the temptation towards unbelief, that unbelief would set into our lives. And that, I was, that as that would grow and fester in us, that it would lead to disobedience. It would lead to a hardened heart and left unchecked. It would prevent them. It would prevent us from experiencing the rest that God promises and offers in the gospel. And so, as the author addresses them, he exhorts them, he challenges them throughout this book to listen, to hear, and constantly as the refrain, let us. And he goes on with his command. So as we enter the new year, we need to hear the command from verse 11 here. I want to start with that and help us understand this command and how we live in it. To strive to enter that rest and what that means to enter the rest that God has accomplished for us. What's it look like to strive to enter into that, to respond to him in submissive faith, obedient faith to him and to experience this rest. So we want to understand what does that look like to strive to enter the rest and what he promises for those who strive to enter. 
for ancient Israel, for the recipients of this letter in Hebrews, for us today, is that God himself promises to be with us, to be our rest, to be present with us in and throughout our lives. And so this week, as we look at these two verses, really want to ask the question, how is it the author seeks to motivate them and to motivate us to enter into this rest? Why must we do this? Why is this important that we strive to enter this rest? Doesn't just come. Why is striving necessary? And the author gives them a couple answers. And next week, we're going to look at the next couple verses as to how we do that and the resources that God has provided for us in our high priest. But first of all, this week, these, these verses. The primary context the writer is addressing the Hebrews with, he has a picture in mind. And this provides for us a, an understanding of the motivation for us today. It gives us a clue as to what, would mo- what he wants to motivate them with. And it's a picture. It's, a, it's an example. It's an example of ancient Israel. It's an example of the pattern that he has in his mind, and he has placed before them really in chapters 3 and 4. He has been unpacking this picture, and he culminates his picture here with this call to rest. And it's ancient Israel, and we've read already a little bit. Chad read some from it is from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. But it's, it's the picture of ancient Israel. It's something that characterizes them after, after Egypt, after the Exodus. And in... in Psalm 95, which is quoted in chapter 3, if you'll turn over there, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, the author uses the last half of Psalm 95 as a reference point to say, I want you to see, this is my concern for you. And you can see, he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your voice, your hearts as you did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You see, what he has in mind is this, this, this event, these accounts in the wilderness, this rebellion. You can look in Exodus chapter 16 and 17, you'll find there the account where they, they come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. And of course, what happens for these hundreds of thousands of people, if there's no food in their water and there's no water, they're hungry and they're thirsty and they begin to grumble and they begin to complain against God and against Moses. And they were tested there. God did provide, but their attitude was the same. But then we go on to this rebellion, this picture of a rebellion that's there was this picture from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. It's a rebellion when God had promised to give them the land, this promised land. He had led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the wilderness, into the promised land. And they had come on the right on the threshold of it, and the 12 spies were sent in. The 12 spies were sent in to kind of chart it out and to see what's going on there. And it seems that this event... These events are characteristic of the heart of Israel. That they were disbelieving, that they were hardened, that they didn't know God. And you remember that account read a little bit by Chad. If you read the whole thing, you find that the twelve were sent in. And you remember the conflicting account of the ten and the two. By the way, their mission was not to determine whether they should go in or not. The mission was to go in and just scout it out and to see what God was going to give them. And of course, to take note of the cities of the fortifications, of the armies, as well as the fruitfulness of the land. So go in. It's not to determine whether you go or not. It's just to check it out. But what happened is they went in, and what they saw, they come out, and the two differing reports were based upon two different perspectives that Chad already shared. 
the two of them, as they saw it, they saw the same thing. They saw the same fruitfulness. They they saw the same cities, the same people, the same armies. But the two saw it through the lens of faith, through the the lens of belief. And as they saw that, and they understood this was a promise of God, this would be something that he would give them. They said, let's go get it. God will surely give it to us. But the other ten, you see the difference. What they saw didn't match what they expected to see. Somehow they thought, I guess that it was just going to be laying open for them to take. They didn't realize what would be involved in appropriating the promises of God to themselves. It would require effort on their part, and they would have nothing of it. And we see that their attitude wasn't combined by faith. And what what did they do? It caused them to exchange their hope in the promise of God for hope in something else. And what did they do? They sought to find a new leader and to return to Egypt. They sought to return to slavery. And so the author, as he writes to them, he says, I want you to see this in the background, that you see that the promise of God combined with belief equals fulfillment, it equals land, it equals rest. But the promise of God with unbelief equals no land, no rest. In fact, it brings about the very judgment of God. Promises there combined with faith enables them, enables us to appropriate and and to receive and enjoy the promises of God. And so the author says in verse 12 of chapter 3, "Take, Take care, brothers, in light of this, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, what's interesting here, we oftentimes think of, I've wrestled with this idea of unbelief. How is it that unbelief is evil? How can the author say that unbelief is an evil thing? I think it's important for us to understand what unbelief actually is in this context. As the author is addressing it, looking at ancient Israel, looking in the heart of man as it can sometimes grow within us, it's there. You see, unbelief is not just the absence of belief. Okay, it's not just the absence or the privation of belief or faith. It's actually the presence of something else. It's the presence of something else else that is toxic to belief. It's the presence of selfishness. It's the presence of my own ideas and what I would want. It's a presence of self-reliance, of hope in what I would want that, that takes the place in the form there that prevents belief from growing. See, unbelief is not just the absence of belief. It's a presence of something that prevents belief from growing. And that's what the author was concerned about here of his recipients, because this can grow easily, especially in the midst of difficulties and challenges, when things don't work out quite like we thought. When the circumstances before us, when we thought the cities would be open to us, that the promise wouldn't be so hard to appropriate for us. It's in those times and those periods that it's difficult for us and this unbelief will grow. Ryan preached last week from Mark chapter 9 and he talked about the man whose son was was demon-possessed. And you remember that his, his cry to Jesus was what? I believe, help my unbelief. And I want to tell you that's a different kind of unbelief than what the author is referring to here. That kind of unbelief, as Ryan talked about, was a loss of hope. But it was a wanting to hope. It was a desiring to hope and looking for something to hope in. This picture of this unbelief that's pictured in Israelites' history is a loss of hope. 
but it's, an, it's not a loss of hope, but it's an exchange of hope. They'd exchanged a hope for the promises of God for their own desires, their own ideas, their own things that they would want that they would go after. And so they'd exchanged the hope in the promise of God for the hope of the things that they'd want, even so much so they would seek to find a leader of themselves and return to Egypt. It's intelligent. It's premeditated in its willful rebellion against God. That's what this unbelief does. That's how it grows in the midst of us. And it's an example that the authors, he's pulling on, and he writes to them, and he writes to us, and he says, I want you to see this example. I want you to look at this, and to look what unbelief really looks like and how it grows in these circumstances. And his point is this. It's very simple as a, as a point of motivation. He says, let us strive to enter that rest because we don't want to be like them. His command of this, don't be like them. Don't follow that same pattern. Don't allow that kind of unbelief to grow in the same way it grew in them. Don't be like them is his challenge. That's his motivation. See the picture? It's like any of us as a parent. What we do, we, we take negative examples and show our kids and say, See, <laughs> if you do that, that's what's going to happen. And we want you to see this negative. And that's what he does. He holds up a negative example to see that. But here's the problem. If any of us look at these examples and we look at these settings in Numbers and Exodus, when we read these accounts, we can't help but find ourselves right there in those pages. I can't help but find that, guess what? If I'm placed in those exact circumstances, thinking as I enter into this promised land and seeing the giants, seeing the fortified cities, in spite of all the fruitfulness, I can't help but think I'm thinking the same thing. Let's turn around and head back. I find myself there. I find that I have the same ideas, the same notions, the same inclinations to see through the lens of unbelief because I don't like what I see. I don't like what God says. This is necessary for you to appropriate my promises through these efforts in this way. So I find myself there. And so the author writes to them. He says, look at the picture So therefore, we have to strive to enter this rest. We need to strive. We need to make every effort. We need to work at this. This doesn't come easy. There's work that's involved in entering into the rest. There's work involved in identifying, eradicating unbelief in our hearts. Something must must happen. And so he calls them with this example in the back to motivate them. He says, I want this to be explanatory to you. I want this to be a, a picture for you to see. I don't want this to be descriptive of you so that in our unbelief that it will not lead us in the same way as it led them in ancient Israel to exchange their hope in the promise of God for hope in their own plans and their own desires, ultimately leading to slavery. That's there. So the author, he motivates them. Why should we strive? He says, here's the picture. This is what unbelief does. There's a promise there. The way you apprehend it, the way you take it, Enjoy the benefits of the promises through belief. But by unbelief, you do not enter the land. You do not enjoy it. By the way, the picture of rest there and connected with the land, we understand that this rest has a much larger picture throughout Scripture. Indeed, that's what his his point here in the rest of chapter 4. He says this rest is connected with the presence of God. It has this future orientation. It's present now. It's come in Christ. But it has a future reality that culminates ultimately in him. 
And so this rest is what we go after. This is what we must strive for. But then the author goes on, and these these verses that are just astounding, he wants them to see clearly the example from the past, and he uses it as a model of unbelief to see where it goes. But these next verses, he, he frames his motivation for them in terms of the Word of God. And in these, these, these verses, we have some of the most vivid explanation of what God's Word is. He goes on to say, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give an account. He gives us these verses that capture us. It should get our attention as we understand, as we see what, what God's word is here the most vivid, daunting, invasive description of God's word that we have in Scripture about what it does and what it is. There's a number of other passages we could look at. It's a lamp into our feet, a light into our path, and it does that. Paul tells us, writes to Timothy, says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So he says, yeah, okay, it's that. James tells us that the, the word of God, it's a, it's, a, it's a mirror that we hold up into our face and we can see what we look like here. But here the author, he wants to motivate them. And he says, I want you to see the reality. I want you to see the character, the reality of the word of God that's here. And how does he describe it? He describes it as a severely sharp instrument, wielded by a severe personal being, namely God. He describes it as an instrument that cuts like no other instrument, deep and in ways that nothing else cuts. That it's so sharp, it's sharp on both sides and all sides, that it exposes, it undresses, and reveals, especially to the one that really matters, especially to the one that counts. This should get our attention this last week as I was looking at this and trying to go, what do we do with this? What is this? As he writes this, how is this motivation to them? How is it motivation to us? And the question I want to start with is this, is the, are these words, this description of the word of God, is it a warning or is it to be encouragement for the hearers? Is it a warning or is it encouragement? Is it a, a fear of chastisement? Is it a fear that will be cut to pieces? Or is it a a place to rest in that we can find? And of course the answer, if you're where I've come, the answer is yes. It is both. God's word does both. It will do whatever it needs to do. And the question for you and for me is, what needs to be done in my life? What kind of work, what kind of effect needs to come upon me? Whatever effect that is, God's word will accomplish. It will do that. And the author brings this reality. He says, this is the word of God. And we strive and we understand this is God's word. So as we we look at what this is, we kind of tear it apart. We have not the time to to kind of take it apart like I would, would like. But he goes on to say that the word of God, it's living and active. That essentially it means that what it, what God says happens. 
And you can read throughout the scriptures and you find that exactly being the case. When God speaks, what he intends to happen happens. When he says, let there be light, what happens? There's no chance that light doesn't appear. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, there's no chance that Lazarus doesn't return from the grave. When Jesus turns the water into wine, there's no chance that it doesn't happen. And on and on and on it goes. We see when God speaks, he brings about the affected goal, the desired goal, even as he speaks into our hearts, as we experience his speech, his word speaking to us, making us alive in Christ, shining his light into our lives. So his word, it's effective and it accomplished what he intends to effect in our lives. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's penetratingly powerful. It's sharp on all sides. A number of different ways to understand exactly what that means, but I think it's best to understand that it penetrates. It will, it will cut in both ways. Some have thought and see it as a way that it, it cuts to save and it cuts in judgment. There's two ways that it can cut. It cuts in warning and it cuts in encouragement. There's a variety of ways, but it cuts. And when it does, it accomplishes the work that God intends. But the cutting has a purpose, right? The cutting is a dividing, dividing and separating things that are indivisible, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What is that about? He's separating things that virtually are indivisible. What's that about? It's the separation as a function, as a purpose. He separates So he can see. He separates so it can be exposed. He separates the good from the bad and he reveals what's there in our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And he reveals things that we don't even know. And he exposes it. And he says that all are naked. All are exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the cutting, the work has the ultimate effect of exposing us at the deepest level of our being, the deepest core of who we are, the deepest, darkest, most confused, intermingled intentions of the human heart. He cuts and he sees the parts of our lives that we have sought to hide all of our lives, the parts of our lives that we don't understand, the parts of our lives that confuse us, and will until the day we die. His word goes there and separates and exposes and does work there in our lives. Variety of applications for this, but one in particular I want to look at. What does this mean? What does it mean that God's word does these things, that it cuts, it exposes, what, in, in practical terms for us? We've experienced it at times as we read it. There's things that come off the page and our heart is and we see the sin that's there do that you see there's any number of ways that the author could have framed the word of god and its function and what it does it could be powerful to bless it could be powerful to destroy he could say the word of god crushes and to motivate by saying he's going to crush you if not but instead he frames it in these words in this these pictures of cutting and discerning and judging and separating and exposing to the eyes of God, and indeed as well to the eyes of ourselves, to understand ourselves. He frames it in a way, and what this means 
is that God knows us. That he knows us intimately. He knows us completely. That he knows and reveals who and what we are. In the most intimate and intrusive ways possible, he sees us and knows us. And that's the author says, I want you to see that. Because that will motivate you. Why do you strive to enter that rest? Because only by doing this, only by God's word, will he reveal who you are. Only as you see who you are, as you understand and submit to his word, can you experience him in this rest. By being known by him and submitting to to him and what he's doing. This is a book that knows us. I want to read a short account here from, this is from, James Boyce's Foundations of the Christian Faith. There's a few paragraphs here, I think, I hope you'll bear with me, of a, an account of a man named Emile Callier. I asked Bill exactly the pronunciation of that last name, and that's what we came up with, a French theologian and philosopher. This is an account of him as he comes in contact with God's Word. During the long night watches, Callier began to long for what he came to call a book that would understand me. He was highly educated, but he knew of no such book. Thus, when he was later wounded and released from the army and returned to his studies, he determined that he would prepare such a book secretly for his own use. As he read for his courses, he would file away passages that seemed to speak to his condition. Afterward, he would copy them over in a leather-bound book. He hoped that the quotations which he carefully indexed and numbered, would lead him from fear and anguish to release and jubilation. At last the day came when he had put the finishing touches to his book, the book that would understand me. He went out and he sat down under a tree and opened his anthology. He began to read, but instead of release and jubilation, a growing disappointment began to come over him as he recognized that instead of speaking to his condition, the various passages only reminded him reminded him of their context and his own work in searching them out and recording them. Then he knew that the whole undertaking simply would not work. For the book was a book of his own making. It carried no strength of persuasion. Dejected, he returned it to his pocket at the very moment. His wife, who knew nothing of the project, came by with an interesting story. She had been walking in their tiny French village that afternoon and had stumbled upon a, a small Huguenot chapel. She had never seen it before, and she began, and she gone, as she had gone in and asked for a Bible, much to her surprise, the elderly pastor had given her one. She began apologizing to her husband, for she knew his feelings about the Christian faith. But he was not listening to her apology. A Bible, you say? Where is it? Show me, he said. I've never seen one before. When she produced it, he rushed to his study and began to read in his own words. He writes, I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read. Now aloud, with an indescribable warmth surging within, I could not find words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware. I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke, had acted in them, became alive to me. The providential circumstances amid which the book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book, understanding a man 
this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered me was the same God of whom it was spoken of in the book. A book that would understand us. That's what this is. God's word is something that it knows us. It understands us. In fact, it's all that will understand us. And the only hope that we will have of understanding ourselves. And that's what the author says. How are you going to strive to enter that rest? Only as you submit yourself to this work. The cutting, revealing, extracting, exposing work of the word of God. Will you have any hope of finding rest? The fact is, we know this. We don't even know ourselves. We don't understand ourselves. We confuse ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. We have an infinite capacity to deceive ourselves. And to combine that infinite capacity to deceive ourselves, we're sick. We need both one to extract our deceitfulness and one to heal our brokenness. And God says, I, the Lord, search the heart, search the mind to know. And he reaches in there. So how can this picture be a picture of encouragement? How can this picture of this piercing sword of God into our lives be a picture of rest? For those of you who have experienced it, you know that it's the only place ultimately of rest. It's not pleasant. It's not pretty as it does its work in our life. It's not quick. Over the course of time and in our lives, we find it constantly is penetrating, revealing stuff that we don't like about our lives. Pointing to things, revealing, uncovering, exposing us. Telling us things that we wish weren't true. And yet it's in the hands of that surgeon that we will find rest. It's at that point in that place that we'll experience the rest that comes alone from the presence of God. It's in that moment as we cement ourselves to him and to what he offers that work in our lives. Will we enjoy the rest that is promised? But it comes through submission as we submit to it and that work. Because you see, there's another side to the sword. There's this sword that is in the hands of the skillful surgeon cutting out our sin to those who will submit and bow the knee to him. But there's another side. The other side of the sword is the sword that will cut up the one who will judge to the one who will not submit, to the one who will not bow down, to the one who will presume upon God, the one who will not hope in his promises, but in his own abilities and self-reliance. Just in the backdrop of this is Israel again. See that group of people who was kept out of the land, who said, you will not go up because you did not believe. You will not receive the promises of God because you didn't combine them with faith. Sought to go up and take the promises of God in their own way, in their own means. If you follow that account, they were cut to pieces there by the inhabitants of the land. And God says, for those who submit, they enjoy the benefit and the beauty and the rest and the growth, if you will, of the surgeon who cuts and exposes. But those who don't submit, those who seek to accomplish it in their own ways, he will cut up. And so there's judgment to be found 
there as well. So the author writes to them. He says, I want you to see the backdrop. I want you to see this example so that we won't follow the same source of unbelief. We won't exchange the hope of the promise of God, but rather we'll embrace it by believing and submitting ourselves. And then he says, and see the word of God. This is the only hope you have of striving to enter that rest at the hand of the skillful one who will cut, who will reveal and expose and conclude with this statement from one of the commentaries of this one, the rest and the grace that is found at this point of being exposed before God. The man who acknowledges that he is now and that he will be hereafter naked and exposed to the eyes of the one with whom we have to reckon and that the discernment of God is always without error as he looks into our lives. And his judgment righteous and equitable. So that the one who recognizes the need of God's exposure and the rightness of what he sees, it's this one. This man is standing at the threshold of grace. As we find ourselves in submission, bowing down before our king, receiving his word to us, accepting his scalpel, his work in our lives from his word. It's in and through that that we have hope of entering into the rest. We have the hope of knowing him. We have the hope of enjoying eternity with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this work that you have done and promised to do upon us. We confess our unbelief that's there and grows so easily in the midst of our difficulties. But Father, would you sustain us? Would you enable us to repent and to submit to your work no matter what it might look like. Help us, Father, to find ourselves being obedient and submissive to your word and its work in our lives, that it would expose, and as it does, we would receive your grace in those moments and times to to find our sin cut out and to to see see growth in our hearts, that we would truly know you. And strengthen us as a church this year and protect us, we pray so that we would strive to enter into your rest. Father, many needs today, and so I submit just a few of them to you. Among them, I pray for the Bartlow family as they they, um, deal with a funeral and celebrate um, Mike's dad and and his death, and and, uh, pray that you'd be with them and comfort them. We pray for the Santees. Father, would you... Continue to give strength and sustain them as Mackie begins her chemotherapy this week. Would you, um, your hand be close to them? Would they, their faith be strong and strengthened this week and through the upcoming weeks as they work through this? Thanks for successful surgery of Julie Leslie as well. We're grateful that you are so good to, to be a God that is with us. Continue to send us out, Father, as people with this message of rest to a world that desperately needs to see it and to hear it and experience the rest and submission to you, that we would find rest as your sheep at your feet enjoying from you. Pray that that would be manifest in and through our days this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.